This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafumo. Mark Thompson. Get woke. The legends are true. We're overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This, com- this session is on poverty equals death. That's a, just to say that makes you almost sick on the stomach. That poverty equals death. And so with the Poor People's Campaign, the National Call for a Moral Revival, and um, the Yale Center for Public Policy and Public Theology, we wanted to sponsor this first session, a pair of the Breach and Kairos Center to sponsor this first session so that we really know what's going on, not assume it. We want it to be on you when you go tomorrow. We want your eyes to look like you've seen the death and you can't accept it. We want, we want your hearts to be pumping with a moral uh, this, uh, uh, refusal, you know? Like sometimes you just got to have an eternal discontent. You don't have to be evil. You don't have to use weapons and knives and kill nobody. But you can have an eternal discontent. But you first gotta see it. And then you said in this movement, we will not be loud and So we got these powerful scholars and they told me, we've been, they said, we've been waiting for a movement. And I said, well, we got one. Bring your footnotes on over here. <laughs> Give him a hand. Dr. David Brady. Wave your hand, David. Dr. Valerie Wilson, Economic Policy. Dr. Greg, come here. Gonzalez, the public health specialist from Yale. Dr. David Brady, he's got all this research. And then, and then our own attorney, Valerie Equivon. And coming to us by live, by video, Jonathan Hartgrove, Minister Jonathan Hartgrove. He's at a conference where people are, are, are getting uh, uh, white nationalism and white evangelicalism exercised out of them. <laughs> Lord have mercy. You know, we are that movement that puts everybody in the room. I had a conversation one time and somebody said, well, Reverend Barber, uh, why don't you just, you know, do things with black people? And Liz said, why don't you just do things with women? That's not what a moral future movement is. And, and, and you have to hear that. This is a space where we put a black woman in Alabama in the same space with a Kentucky coal miner. We put a Kentucky coal miner in the same space as a native indigenous brother and his suicide children. Because what we recognize is that everybody has a right to live. And we don't have, and, and, and while silos are important sometimes, we have to have at least a movement, a moral movement in every moment in history that connects the dots and the injustices and recognizes that you don't have to put racism over here and classism over here and ecological devastation over here and all that because the truth of the matter is if 
you die from cancer, you don't die black, you don't die white, you don't die Republican, you don't die Democrat, you die dead. Now that doesn't mean we don't, we, that doesn't mean we disrespect this disparity. We do, we do disaggregation of the numbers. Oh, that's important, you have to. We do the percentage disaggregation and the raw number disaggregation. That's why in this movement we can tell you that there are 26 million poor low-wealth black people, that's 60% of black population. There are 30% of poor low-wealth white people, that's 66 million white folk. 26 million black, 66 million white. We look at the percentage differences, we look at the impact, but what we also know is if you're poor and you can't pay your light bill, when the lights go off, we all black in the dark. And there has to be a moral fusion movement that says you won't divide us anymore and recognizes that the same forces that attack the LGBTQI community are the same ones attacking voting rights. And the same ones attacking voting rights are attacking health care. And the same ones attacking health care are attacking living wages. And the same ones attacking living wages are blocking fixing the environment. And the same ones blocking fixing the environment are funding the military. And the same ones funding the military in gross ways are oftentimes engaged in religious nationalism. And if they are cynical enough to be together, we have to be smart enough to come together and to stay together. That's what a moral fusion movement does. It's not about being an organization, it's about being an organism. And so now Dr. Brady, who has brought this research to life, because he told me something one day, he didn't hear me after he said it, I cursed a couple of times, because he said, he, he said and I put my phone on me, I said, did he just say the stuff is readily available? It's sitting out there. And I said, well, if it's sitting out there, why is it that every night you hear about homicide, but you don't hear about death by poverty, and yet poverty is killing more people than homicide? Killing more people than the police. And so we invited him to come. You've already introduced the, the scholars. We're gonna have a conversation, and he's gonna take a few minutes and walk us through the footnote of our frustration. He's gonna walk through the logical, empirical data that undergirds our legitimate discontent. All right? Dr. Brady. Thank you. Okay, so do we have slides or no, no slides? No slides. All right. Okay. So there were going to be some slides, and um, thank you, first of all, for being here. It's a real honor to be on this stage, and it's also a real honor to be useful, to have generated some kind of social science knowledge. Oh, we do have slides. All right. Um, and to have generated some knowledge that could be useful for this moral campaign. So. I really liked the call that we had earlier of fight poverty, not the poor, because I've been saying for years that we need to think of it as a problem of poverty, not the poor. The typical way Americans think about poverty is to think of poor individuals, the choices, behaviors, the traits of those poor individuals. And it's a better way to think of poverty as a systemic problem of America. And, what, and when I say it's systemic, I would say poverty is systemically high. I mean five concrete things. First, uh, and you can advance the slide, okay? So first, poverty affects a huge population. By the measure I use, about 17.5% of Americans were poor in 2019, which is roughly 57 million people, all right? And this is a huge share of our population. There are other numbers out there, but this is a reasonable number. And that-, hey, that, let, that yeah. let me, let me add, because the folk here, because of our numbers. Sure. You mean 
we do poverty and low wealth, but you're looking at actual just poverty. Sure. Your, your data, if you, you could go further and add poverty and low wealth as we do, because we think it's essential. But for this point this morning, he wants to drive home. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so just low income, and I'll talk about how I define it in just a moment, but just low income in that sense. And this number is quite high, as I mentioned. Now, one of the ways we can say it's huge is that the Pew Research Center annually surveys Americans and asks Americans, what are the biggest problems in America? And of the problems that Americans mention, the most highly mentioned are the affordability of health care, violent crime, quote unquote, illegal immigration, gun violence, and unemployment. And there's been, of course, considerable attention to evictions and mass incarceration and COVID in recent years. But interestingly, Pew has never listed poverty as one of the biggest problems that Americans say they face. And yet, as we see in this figure right here, there are 64 times as many people that experience poverty as experience an eviction, 32 times as many people experience poverty as are incarcerated at one point in time, 17 times as many people are victims of poverty as are victims of violent crime, and there are more than five and a half times as many people in poverty as there are undocumented immigrants. And in the first year of COVID, there were twice as many people that were in poverty as were infected by COVID. Poverty is very consistently high. We have data on the United States and other rich democracies for several decades, and we've seen consistently for several decades, the United States hovers around 17% poor, whereas the typical country has a poverty rate of as low as 9 or 10%. So what's unusual about the United States is that it's consistently high. A third way in which poverty is systemically high is that it's egregiously or outrageously high for certain groups. All right, so we often say that America has high child poverty, but the reality is child poverty for white kids especially is not very different from what you see for child poverty in Germany or France. My, my. But, go ahead. What? True, true. So in the United States, only about 10% of white kids are poor, which is too high, but that's a similar rate of child poverty to what all of Germany has or what all of France has. And the reason the United States has such extraordinarily high child poverty is we have egregiously high child poverty for black, Latino, and Native American children. So in the United States, about a third of African-American children are poor. No country in the history of rich democracies over the past 50 years has had a child poverty rate that high. There we go to the next slide, please. And go ahead, and yeah, perfect. And you can see it right here. So you can see really it's the black, Latino, and Native American kids that are pulling up the American high child poverty rate. And down there in the dashed line that goes up and down is your typical poverty rate for a rich democracy. And what's really unusual is that we have these groups that we punish with egregiously high rates of child poverty. Now, two other ways in which America has systemically high poverty is that it's surprisingly high for those that play by the rules. Even for people that meet the standard of socioeconomic achievement in America. They get married, they have kids after they're married, they finish high school and they work. Even for those groups, poverty is disturbingly high. So one of my favorite statistics is there are about three times as many poor people in working households as there are in jobless households. Now finally, of course, we all know we're re representing all these different states. Poverty is per pervasive across places in the United States. It's also pervasive across all groups. 
Yeah. So poverty occurs in the suburbs, in the rural areas, in the cities, in South Dakota, where I grew up, in California, where I live now, and here in Washington, D.C. You can advance the slide to the next slide. All right. So now, one of the things we've learned as social scientists, we haven't learned much, but one thing we can say with confidence is poverty is bad for your health. All right. It's associated with nearly every single health outcome. One of my friends, Bruce Link, is a famous public health researcher, and I asked him, I was like, are there any diseases or health conditions that are not associated with poverty and he really had to stop and think and he thought about it for a long time and he's like maybe brain cancer maybe and so that just tells you every health condition is associated with poverty and this is the case even though we know that being unhealthy is bad for poverty too so if you get sick you get disabled you're depressed you can't work as much of course it also works that way but it doesn't matter poverty leads to deprivation material relative deprivation it's stressful it's bad for your mental health and exposes you to a variety of toxins now one thing i want to say is we got to be a little bit careful according to the health researchers about how we talk about causes and risk of death when they talk of a cause of death they mean the physiological thing that breaks down in your body so heart disease lung disease something breaks down physiologically in you what we mean by a cause of death is more of a risk factor poverty is a cause of the causes of death it's a risk that puts you at risk of death and in this sense we can think of it as some would say a fundamental cause of death all right and in this sense poverty is a risk factor like smoking or drinking or obesity it's bad for your health right and even though we know poverty is bad for your health and we know that poverty is definitely bad for is a huge in the United States it's really remarkable to me that we didn't have the number before of how many deaths are associated with poverty I thought surely somebody's gotten this number somebody's estimated this number before and I learned that this was not actually the case all right and so I could talk about why that is in the Q&A but I'll just tell you briefly a little bit about this study so you understand the evidence that we've generated that's hopefully useful for this movement okay so the study what you do is use what's called panel data and what you're doing is you're following the same 20,000 people every two years so imagine you start in 1997 and you interview these people and then you come back to them two years later and in 97 you knew if there were poor or not and by 99 and 2001 and 2003 and so forth you know whether or not they passed away so a simple and clean way to think about this is if you're poor in 2017 what were the odds that you died by 2019 versus someone that was not poor in 2017 so part of what David I hear you saying is this panel down and we want to quote to hear this you know, this is not you just threw something together. <laughs> we don't do that. You know, this is real research. And when you use this panel way, you're able to look at it over a period of time. And also, I hear you saying, help people to understand what we often talk about. If you get locked into poverty, you can get locked in, sure. literally locked in. Sure. And so there's two ways we can think of poverty. One is, are you currently poor? Were you poor this year? But we also look at what we call cumulative poverty. So over the past 10 years, what proportion of those years were you poor? And we can estimate the effect of each of these on your probability of passing away. Now, beyond all that, I'll add that we're going to give these numbers. We've been saying poverty is the fourth leading cause of death, or at least as big as the fourth leading cause of death. But actually, those numbers are conservative. And I mean conservative, Ooh, my, my. and they're probably underestimates. Mm, no, yeah. I'm just being a black preacher. My, my. <laughs> 
And so I'll tell you, so you understand the numbers, why they're conservative. They're lower bound estimates. It's probably much higher than this. First of all, we don't have children in our data. We're only looking at people 15 years old and over. A big cause of death in America is infant mortality. And of course, that's associated with poverty. Now, we control for all kinds of other factors. We know whether or not people have chronic conditions, like Alzheimer's, whether they have diabetes and so forth, whether they've experienced an acute health event, like a stroke or a heart attack. And we can control for those. Even controlling for those factors, we're finding these effects of poverty. Further, we stopped our analysis in 2019 before COVID. And as we all know, COVID killed a lot of people because of poverty. Now, moreover, all of the social science studies that we do, especially our own, we're missing a lot of poor people. Our surveys are biased to underrepresent poor people. We don't count the unhoused people because we have a household panel survey. If you don't have a household, we can't interview you, okay? We don't count institutionalized people, and most likely many of them would be poor. Now, moreover, think about who doesn't answer survey questions. Who doesn't answer surveys? It's poor people. Low-income people are less likely to participate in surveys. So I teach in Southern California, and when I ask my students, many of whom are undocumented students themselves or children of undocumented immigrants, I say, say the Census Bureau comes up to your door and knocks on the door, would you tell them how many people live here and how much money the household has? And No, they wouldn't do that. So we're missing these disadvantaged populations systemically, and so our estimates are conservative, okay? So think of poverty as a risk factor that can be expressed through lots of kinds of ways of disease, but it is a conservative estimate. Okay, so you can go to the next slide. All right, and so the way to think about this is you can come up with these estimates, and we can tell you that poverty would increase the probability of mortality by a factor of 1.4. That's current poverty. Being poverty today will affect, increase the probability of mortality by a factor of 1.4. Cumulative poverty, the proportion being poor over the past 10 years, in this case being poor all of the past year, 10 years, increases the, the probability of mortality by a factor of 1.7. But those numbers are called hazard ratios, and I find them a little bit hard to understand. So look at this graph. It gives you a clear sense of what these numbers mean. The black line are those people that are not in poverty. And the x-axis is the age of these people. And as you see, the black line, these people are surviving. This is a survival curve. But then they start to pass away as they get older, because unfortunately, age still predicts mortality. All right? The yellow line is for those in poverty. And what you see is that their survival starts to fall off much sooner than those not in poverty. And especially in the ages of 40s, 50s, and 60s, you see a much lower survival rate amongst those in poverty than amongst those not in poverty. And think of it this way, is that poverty is killing people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s prematurely versus those that are not in poverty. Now, this is a big amount of mortality this leads to, and you can go to the next slide, and you can see some ways to compare this. So like I said, we can be technical and say, it's not a cause, it's a risk factor, causes are physiological breakdowns, but I can tell you that poverty would be as big as the fourth leading cause of poverty, all right? And in current poverty, just this right now being poor, this amounts to 6.5% of deaths, which is about 183,000 deaths in the United States or as Reverend Barber taught me, about 500 deaths a day. And that's just current poverty. 
current poverty leads to more death than accidents, lower respiratory diseases, stroke, Alzheimer's. I like to point out that we worry a lot about crime in America. We're very obsessed with crime. And poverty kills 10 times as many people as homicide. And many of those homicides themselves are linked to poverty. Poverty kills more than five times as many people as from firearms and 2.6 times as many people as drug overdose. And of course, those risks are associated with poverty as well. Cumulative poverty kills even more. So if you've been poor for a very, very long time, as many people are, it's as much as 10% of deaths and almost 300,000 deaths. Okay, and I'll move on to the next slide now and just summarize this a little bit more big picture. We should think of poverty as responsible for a huge amount of mortality. I underline our estimates are conservative. It's probably much higher than this. And even if you don't want to call poverty a cause of death, it's as big as the fourth leading cause of death. So we can even say it's more than the fourth leading cause of death. Okay, now beyond that, I would see that. What's ahead of it? Cancer, heart disease, and it's on this slide right before it. Go back one slide if we can. Um, so cancer, heart disease, and I believe lower respiratory disease is the next highest. Okay? Yeah. And uh, oh, uh, dementia is a big cause of poverty. Thank you. Okay. All right. So if we go back to the last slide, I would argue that this gives us a clear understanding of some puzzles we've had. It gives us a key piece of the puzzle. So it's not news. Everybody knows that there are enormous racial and ethnic disparities and mortality in America, that African-American people are likely to live four or five years younger, that to die five, four or five years younger than white people. And this is a key piece of that puzzle. Because there are huge racial disparities in poverty, which there are, that's a reason why we see such big disparities in mortality. Moreover, we've long known that the United States has high mortality compared to other rich democracies, that we don't live as long as they live in Germany and Japan and France and other places. And the reason, a big reason for this, is that we have these very, very high rates of poverty. Now, beyond that, I would say that I want us to think about this in terms of a cost-benefit exercise, all right? And what I really want is not just to have a moral victory, we're a moral campaign, we're a moral movement, but I don't want us to be satisfied with moral victories. I want to win. I want to change the discussion, change the debate, influence policy so we reduce this poverty. And let me, and let me help you as a march. This is why we got to be in conversation. <laughs> because, see, those of you all in the academy often think that morality is to feel good. It's not. You cannot be moral without economic victory. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so you do want a moral victory. Yeah. That's because if you, want, if you want to change policy, see, that's the difference. We put morality like it's over here, yeah. and then cost. You a budget is a moral document, absolutely. Right? Yeah. A, a a health bill is a moral document. What so we're actually saying the same thing. And then here you have to kind of be careful. You, you don't want not a, like to win, but over here we just being moral. No, yeah. it the Constitution says establish justice. Ain't a damn thing just about poverty. Kept being the fourth uh, called the death. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was thinking about it in terms of like, you know, if your team is losing a game and it comes from behind and it gets really close and almost wins the game, but came back and battled hard, we might call that. No, no, that that ain't a moral victory. I played football. (laughs) Don't even bring that in the room. We talking about winning. We either gonna win now or win later. We're not satisfied with compromise. We're not. That's the problem now. Too many folk are satisfied with a little bit. Yeah. And this movement, that's why this, in this movement, 
if somebody said, if somebody says, we're going to raise the minimum wage to $12, ain't y'all happy? No. <laughs> we, we want it to be what it ought to be. So I'm just going to agree and say, that's why we got to have social scientists and theologians in the same space. Right. On. So we can get, because we got to get our language right. Okay. So, okay. okay. So let's just okay. say, let's just, let's just shake hand on the, <laughs> the, 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 the social scientist and the preacher want to win. Right on. All right. Now. So, you know, one way to think about this is I want us to get evidence. And again, uh, Reverend Barber is much more useful than I'll ever be, but I want to be at least a little useful so I can offer some evidence that we can use. We can use this evidence. So, you know, if, if somebody sadly passes away and there's some company that's negligent, they're responsible for the death, there's probably going to be a lawsuit, there's going to be a settlement, and they're going to pay the family for the loss of that person, their family. If we have a new government... Yeah. yeah, if we have a new government regulation, they do a cost-benefit exercise. They're like, well, how many lives does this save? How much does it cost? And everybody agrees that you can put a dollar value, sadly, 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 on human life. You can put a dollar value on it. But let's play this game. It's five, ten million dollars per life. If you lose a breadwinner to a family, you got to take care of that family. you got to compensate that family. All right? So let's put a dollar value on these 183000 deaths. Yes, sir. Right. And let's say we do it very, very conservatively. That 183,000 is a conservative estimate. Now let's estimate the value of a human life very conservatively. Let's just say $1 million. That's cheap. Okay. Even if you do that, that results in $183 billion that would be saved by reducing poverty. $183 billion. That's more than we spend on SNAP or what we know as food stamps. That's more than 10 times what we spend on temporary assistance to needy families. That's more than we spend on the EITC, the CTC, and what have you. So the cost of social policies should be compared against the cost of all this death from poverty. And if we do that cost-benefit analysis, if we convince policymakers that it's cost-effective to fight poverty, this gives us hopefully a useful argument in and, our campaign. And Dr. Brady, yeah. I, you don't know how useful you are in that because here's what, I'm, what we are arguing in this movement that what you just said is in fact see see economics used to be only studied under the under the concept of moral philosophy economics was not a set alone we took it out of moral philosophy so that economics could be seen as benign immoral it's not economics kills in the scriptures in the jewish scriptures for instance it says that that a nation must loose the bands of wickedness. Loose the bands of wickedness means pay people what they deserve. Absolutely. Then it says that nation cannot repair its economic breaches until it does that. So in a real sense, I'm glad you're doing this because what we're saying is it is immoral to in fact make poor people pray. P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y. It is, the, the scripture said, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor. The scripture teaches that a nation will never be prosperous as long as it's hurting the poor. Yeah. So, so what, what happens here is we're actually showing the nation there's this intersectionality. You can't be in Congress and every time you get in the office, you swear, your, swear yourself into office on a Bible, a Quran, or a, or a, um, a, a Bible, a Quran, or a Torah, and you don't know what's in either one of them. <laughs> Especially when it relates to how you treat the least of these. 
So this is very powerful what you're doing. Yes, sir. Keep on. Okay, last thing I'll say on this issue is that how do we use this for political mobilization? Well, I would argue that, it, you know, of course, compassion and sympathy, emotional evocation are always good things. And many people can do this much better than me. But what I would also say, we also should argue that reducing poverty is in the interests of everyone. That's and do. that's helpful to make this argument. That's the last thing I'll say. And, and, and it's so important that you say that because you know how you did that thing. Some of us can argue the companion pointed at me. No, I argue numbers, baby. <laughs> and this movement argues numbers. And that's why we have you because we, if, as long as we have a separation, like it feels good, but it's, it, it's good for No, it's both and. Yeah. The, the, the nation will never get itself together as long as you have a permanent poverty in this nation that does not have to be. Poverty does not have to exist. In fact, let me start there. Let's thank this doc. Thank him for this research. Thank you. You want an hours now, doc. Now let me ask you a question. What number did you use as the baseline for poverty? Because, you know, when we started this movement, we, we did some studies and yeah. we looked at poverty and low wealth. Yeah. Uh, and the number came out to be 43% uh, of the nation, 50% of our children, hundred and uh, over 140 million people, poverty and low wealth. I'm going to ask my sister economic policy in a minute on this. And somebody tried to question us, and they said, well, really, there's only 30, 40 million poor people. And I asked them, well, what number? And they said, well, the government says yeah. that if you make about $13,000 a year, you're not poor. <laughs> so they actually, so yeah, there are actually legislators and congresspeople that argue that at 725, you make $15,000 a year, which puts you in the low middle class. You're not poor. <laughs> Can I, can I say what I would say if we were on the football line and we were trying to go across? Can you wham out a minute, Doc? Just wham out a minute. Just, just, and then I'm going to come to my sister. Yeah. About that crazy number to try to limit sure, poverty sure. to some, you know, $13,000, yeah. you're not poor. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, the best way to define poverty is simply. Define it simply. It just means, very, very simply, you do not have enough resources however we measure resources, to meet your needs, okay? That's all it is. You don't have enough resources to meet your needs. And we can measure resources different way. I just look at income, because I'm a boring academic and we got good data on that. But wealth is a resource too, right? So all we want to, what I agree upon is, it's just a shortage of resources relative to your needs. Now what's usually used is the official poverty measure, which is absurd. It's utterly absurd. Oh, yeah. It's incredibly low threshold. It underestimates poverty massively. Everybody agrees it's not a good way to measure poverty. And so what I'm using is a classic international way is to say what's the middle of the income distribution, the median of the income distribution, and what's one half of that. We'll call that a relative poverty measure. Mine's okay. not perfect. Okay. I would entirely embrace uh, measuring wealth as well. I just don't have as good a data on it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. All right, we can't hear you out there on this, but thank you. Now, so so you you agree with our measurement, and we say low poverty and low wealth or poverty and low wages. Let me ask you one question. Did your numbers yet, did you dis disaggregate uh, by geographic areas? Not in this study. We don't have the data for that, so we need to do more studies. Again, okay. it, it stunned me that the, the government doesn't have the number of deaths associated with poverty. We have estimates on smoking, obesity. We have estimates on all kinds of things. Why don't we have a number on this? So 
I was thought it was like, surely I'm wrong. Surely somebody has got this number. And we've only done really the first of what needs to be many studies on this. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Well, one of the things that we know, we know in this movement that folk want to put it in a box. They don't want to talk about it. I mean, we did an analysis of every presidential debate for the longest time. We can't find anywhere where poverty got 30 minutes attention. So here you have an issue that's affecting, uh, uh, that might be one of the studies you do. Yeah, can, like can you give me credit on that? Down. Can you yes. give me this yeah. one? Okay, all right. I'm helping him. Y'all, y'all see that? Y'all see it right? Okay. But, 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 but seriously, we we looked at all these presidential debates and we said, wait a minute. You got 43 percent of your people poor and low wealth or low wages. Over 50 percent of the children, and not one person running for president or for senate ever gets asked if you get elected. Yeah. Yeah. But you get asked about these crazy cultural wars, yeah. and you get asked about stuff like banning books and 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 what are you going to do about immigrants or people who aren't aren't coming to America? They're coming back home because America stole Texas from them. I mean, I was okay. Let me not go there. But my point my, my point is my point is that that, that for, you know homicide is heard every night on the news, and every presidential candidate runs saying, "Part of what I'm going to do is keep you safe." Yeah. And yet, here's this da- and yet here's this data, so it's so important. Let me ask over here, when you hear this, when you hear this um, to the, uh, Greg and to Valerie, um, and you hear David's uh, piece, and you look at, if we talk about, you know, uh, what's killing people, you know, we talk Black Lives Matters, and we talk about police killing, and we talk about the, ki- the deaths during uh, COVID, uh, but when we look at the lives lost to poverty, black lives, white, Latino, native, you know, as Dave, uh, uh, I'm gonna come to you first, Greg, as a, as a public health specialist, and uh, uh, you're in the same field my daughter is, when you hear Brady's presentation this morning, what do you want to say about that to this movement and to the nation? The nation's listening. He's been, uh, talk to us a little bit. So a couple of things. One is um, over 175 years ago, a doctor was sent to a typhus epidemic in a part of Poland in Germany. And he came back and he said, medical statistics will be our guide. We'll look to see where the dead lie thicker among the workers or the privileged. You see where I'm going? Uh-huh. The point is... Talk a little bit louder. Yeah. Medical statistics will be our guide. 
We'll look to see where the dead lie thicker among the workers or the privileged. There's a field called social medicine, and this doctor, Rudolf Virchow, basically discovered that poverty kills 175 years ago, right? 175 years ago. Um, one of the first things they teach you in public health school, like Sherelle and I both went to public health school, is that it's not just about pills into bodies that keep you, keep you healthy, right? I wake up every morning and I take my anti-HIV, antiretroviral medicines, right? I'm alive 25 years later because of them. But guess what? 80% of our health is not about the biomedical, right? It's about what we call the social determinants of health. It's about income, but it's about housing. It's about education. It's about all the things we, we need to keep ourselves safe and happy and healthy, right? 80% of health is based on the social determinants of health. Now, we talked about how poverty kills, but let's talk about life expectancy in the US. The Institute for Health Metrics in Seattle ranked us in the 40s worldwide for life expectancy, right? That doesn't mean just France, Germany. It means many countries that are much, much poorer than we are. And you know what they say? By 2040, we will be in the 60s in the 60s in global health rankings in terms of life expectancy. And so it doesn't surprise me that poverty kills. It, it hasn't surprised many people in public health that this is indeed the facts, but what we need to do to lift ourselves up is to address poverty, but also all the social protections that keep us safe, right? All the protections that keep us safe. You need a good place to live. You need a good job. You need clean water. You need proper sanitation. And this is what we fought for for public health. You think of public health as a science and you do it in, in academic centers? We were campaigners, right? The history of public health is the history of social movements and the history of the sanitation movement, clean water, sewage disposal, all of this. And we've done it before. So there's a proud history in this movement that links back 150, 175 years ago, right? The other thing is that we need to realize that, that those who have power to, to make choices that create poverty, right? Don't get it wrong. Don't get it wrong by mistake or by ignorance. They make this, and this isn't me. This is a, these are two economists, a guy named Daron Isamoglu from MIT, I probably butchered his name, and a guy named James Robinson who's at the University of Chicago. Yeah. And they wrote a book called Why Nations Fail. They went back to BC all the way to the current time, and it's always about this. Right? Say that again, why? Nations fail. Uh, we have the, yeah, okay. It's a book stop. But the, the passage in that book that stopped me cold was this one about people making choices. People are, po are poor, people are in poverty because other people make choices, and choices that benefit them. There are incentives, right? There are incentives built into, into, into systems that, that keep people sick, that keep people poor. Matthew Desmond, a sociologist from, from Princeton University, just wrote a book called Poverty, Comma, by America. And it's all, all about who benefits from keep, keeping people poor, right? And so it's the same thing for public health and ill health. We're sick, we're dying, not because of who we are, right? It's because of choices other people, other people make. Remember, we spend more on health in the United States than, than almost every other industrialized democracy, and we have these outcomes that are 40, 40th in ranking, 60, 60th in ranking soon for, public, for life expectancy. So Greg, you know, Desmond is on our team. You know, he's, we work, we, we pulling in all the scholars because every movement's got to have these footnotes. So when you hear us as a movement, because we dig deep into data, I want y'all to be clear on that. This is not a feel-good type movement. We dig deep into data because the data, you know, where, where your treasure is is where your heart is. You can't talk to me about your morality unless you be showing me where you're spending your money. 
and, who, and, and who's benefiting that and where you stand in relationship to the dispossessed. But um, when you hear us say, we need a third reconstruction to end poverty and low wealth and low wages, to end it. Greg, does that sound like some way outlandish dream that we shouldn't be pursuing, or is it right, like what the special rapporteur for poverty said to me at the UN when he said, Reverend Barber, we got three lies that, we, that are just lies, the lie of scarcity. You don't have a scarcity resource. The lie that we don't know what to do, or that poverty is simply poor people's bad choices and rather than the bad choices of our economic choices. And then he said, but the third lie is that that we don't that that we don't have the moral that we don't have the moral capacity morally to reshape our policy. He said, all of those are lies. We have all of that. The issue is will we do it? And 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 if you all aren't gonna call for ending poverty and low wealth, then just, you might as well stay out of the game because you got plenty of people that just want to tweak it a little bit and feel real good. So when you hear that as a, as a public health scientist, you think we out there somewhere? No, I say, where do you sign up, right? Yeah. Do you, where do you sign up? No, seriously, yeah. seriously. So, this isn't about poverty, it's about existential politics, right? About whose way of life gets to survive, right? And it's, it's not about, you know, and if you start thinking about the environment, there's an there's a environmental epidemiologist at the University of Toronto, but an American, who said this is about whose way of life gets to survive. Is it ExxonMobil and, and Shell? Or is it Miami Beach and the Maldives who sink underwater? This is about whether we're gonna survive as a species or not. So everybody, this is not just about poverty, it's, course about poverty, but it's about existential politics, about who gets to survive. Yeah. Literally the, literally the heart, soul, and life of the, the, the world and the democracy. And y'all, we have to remember that. That's why we, this, we don't have time for foolishness. What we're doing is not tiddlywinks. It's, we, we can't beat up on each other because we're really fighting for the very soul and life of the world and the nation. And, and you know, telling the truth in a time of lies is the first major revolution. You just got to tell truth. And lastly, when Desmond talks about, we, you know, he says the abolition of poverty. And I love that language, the abolition of poverty. You know, that we need to put that and we need to push and see which politicians and others are willing to say that and we gotta push them to do it and we gotta have a movement that constantly pushes and will not back up on that. And I hear you agreeing with that. Valerie, here you are an economist, EPI, Economic Policy Institute and you all don't, you don't do your politics for Democrats, for Republicans, you don't do your analysis based on party, you do your analysis based on facts. And uh, we're so glad that you would come today. Talk to us a little bit about what, what you hear and want to say based on what's been said and the cost of this, the, 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 and I say the moral cost, meaning for me meaning moral means human, economic, all of it. It's mm -hmm. all compiled of. Um, and maybe respond if you feel comfortable in doing it. After looking at the data, if we were to recover what, I think his name was Ingalls in the 18th century, said when he looked at the policies and said that if politicians and policy makers know on the front end that a, po a policy is causing death and they implement it anyway, then you must call what they're doing policy murder. 
or policy death. And then he said, not manslaughter, because manslaughter would mean you didn't know. Uh, do we have any excuse for not knowing, Valerie? And what is your response? I don't want to tie you in a box. I'm trying to give you a broad, your response to this. So first of all, I want to start off sort of where we were talking about the numbers and where these numbers come from. Uh We've thrown a lot of numbers out here. I I think David's um, definition of poverty really gets to it on, in a very basic sense, Poverty is just having inadequate income or economic resources to meet your basic material needs. But I also like the idea that you all are bringing in a broader definition and thinking about it in terms of poverty, meaning inadequate income, and low wealth. And the reason I say that is because income and, and wealth are two different things. Your income is what you have coming in on a regular basis, whether that be weekly or monthly. Typically a paycheck for most people in this country, but you know, also other kinds of resources um, and benefits that people receive. Your wealth then is what you have access to if those payments were to stop. And so even when we find that by income standards, people may be typically, I mean, or, or uh, what am I trying to say? Maybe literally above the poverty threshold, many more people are much closer to that because if that income were to stop, there's nothing there to catch them. That's right, okay, I got you. And so, and so that's why I think it's important to have that broader definition when we're having these kinds of discussions. I also think a lot of the language that was used during the pandemic and in sort of crafting the pandemic response is interesting and instructive as you know you were just making points about the morality of our policy making and, and whether we know what to do, whether we have the resources to do it. A lot of the language that we used at that time, and we said this ourselves at EPI, that the pandemic policy response was generally effective for limiting the depth and the length of the crisis because we had a response at the scale of the problem. So we didn't just you know, throw pennies at it. We had a big economic policy response. The other thing that we hear uh, as it relates to that is that we had a a policy response of that magnitude because we were responding to a global economic and public health crisis. It's interesting that we can use that kind of language in response to the pandemic, but in light of the idea that poverty is the fourth leading cause of death, I would say those are things that apply all the time, right? right? Right, right. No, we're not just doing a pandemic. Not just, there's always a an pandemic. economic crisis That's right. That's in, right. in many communities around this country. There's always a public health crisis in communities around this country. And that requires that we have a response at the scale of that problem. And so I would argue that many of the things that we did during the pandemic, by expanding access to a lot of income supports, like the unemployment insurance, uh, the child tax credits, uh, economic impact payments, was basically just getting a check. The government sending checks to people because they know people need money to meet their basic material needs. Again, we know (laughs) what it takes to address the issue of poverty. Uh, But they also did things that directly impacted like food insecurity. You know, for children, school-aged children, regardless of where you were on the income scale, they were providing free meals. You know, why is that not something that can be done um, 
you know, during a time that is not just a global or national crisis so, time. So I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm hearing Dave and Greg and Valerie, you all saying something that we need to say. We had a COVID pandemic start in 2019, but we had a poverty pandemic and epidemic before the COVID pandemic. Right. And if we had been addressing the poverty, low wealth, low wage pandemic epidemic before COVID, COVID wouldn't have even been so bad. We'd right. have been more prepared to deal with COVID. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, benefits addressing housing insecurity. They had things that you know prevented people from being put out of their homes during the pandemic. So again, we know what to do, uh, and it is just a matter of, of actually getting it done. And this issue of what poverty costs is one thing, but also the issue of who benefits from poverty. Can, can I ask you and David, I'm gonna come to Valerie in a minute and jump in on this. I want y'all to flip that question over, because one thing in this movement, we often find that, you know, a misdiagnosis is gonna make you sicker. <laughs> a misdiagnosis is gonna make you sicker. You're already sick. But if you get mis so if you got a misdiagnosis about who is poor, your only way of looking at poverty, first of all, if you say it's is people's own personal decision. That's one of the misdiagnoses. That grows all the way back to the critics of the New Deal. Uh, uh, it goes all the way back to the critics of, of the Freedmen's Bureau after slavery, where there's articles were written saying basically black people are just immoral, so there's no need for us to keep spending this money, and they discounted all the damage that was done during slavery. I mean, it's it, it just bad misdiagnosis. If you um, misdiagnose what a real living wage is, then you only make people sicker. If you misdiagnose the need for healthcare. The other thing is if you raise the wrong question. So I want to flip a question over and have y'all respond. Joseph Sticklitz, who's a friend of this movement, says the part of the problem in America is we keep asking the wrong question. Every time we sit down to do analysis, first of all, what if we had done, and we, we agree with a number of things that happened during the pandemic and the response. We're not anti everything. But the question we ask is, what if the response had been built from the poor up? If it wasn't a neoliberal middle class up and a trickle down, up, down, but from the poorest up, I'm gonna raise that question here. What if we went from the poor? And then secondly, what if our question was not what will it cost to fix poverty, but what is it costing it for poverty to stay like it is? Can, can you all talk a little bit about the cost of things staying as it is? I'm going to throw that question and I'm going to go, go, go to Valerie. But all of you, just take a shot at it. Okay. What the cost of things being as they are. You have any? Oh, yeah, <laughs> both, all of them. Just, I will just jump you in. You go first, Al. All right. So the cost of things being as they are, I think, you know, it starts with this whole idea that we started this session off, making this nation live up to its promise. Who are we as a country? if we allow poverty to stay as it is. What does that say about this supposedly being the greatest country on the earth, the most uh, land of the most opportunities, um, if we know what we can do to address this problem and only do it periodically for you know, limited periods of time? So I think our entire um, 
existence and our entire idea of what it means to be America is at stake, um, in addition to the lives that are being lost due to poverty. Take a shot, Greg. So if we had gone into the pandemic being first in life expectancy in, in the rankings, right? It would have meant that we dealt with healthcare in the US. It would meant that we had dealt with social protections, housing, food assistance, all the things that undergird our, our health. So we went in number 44 and we paid for it, right? Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> uh-uh. you, you did not just sit in here and say <laughs> that with all the bragging we do, <laughs> about being better. And I, I, I love this country, I love it enough to critique it. But you did not just sit in here and say that we went into this pandemic the 44th in life expectancy. We did, we came out being the highest per capita deaths from COVID and the highest excess deaths from COVID among the G7, the big, rich industrial democracies. It's not rocket science, right? We didn't invest in healthcare, we didn't invest in social protections, and it came back to bite us, basically. Yeah, definitely. No, let's, let, let's hear this in some, some real somber. T- yeah. Talk, take I a mean, shot. So what, what, is, what is the cost? It's hundreds of billions of dollars, if you want to think of it that way. Um, just even if, you know, I would be delighted with abolition of poverty, but even if we moved American poverty for being this outlier to a typical rich democracy, which would mean we cut it in half, that would save way over $100 billion. One of the ways to think about this is that in the early 1980s, we ran an experiment where we gradually expanded Medicaid across the United States for children. So before the 80s, it was very rare for poor kids in the South to get Medicaid. Afterwards, there was slightly more access to Medicaid. Now, 30, 40 years later, we can see where those kids went, and it saves millions, billions of dollars because they're healthier, they do better, they live longer, they're less likely to have chronic disease. So there's both that short-term cost, hundred billions of dollars, but there's also a long-term cost in that we're squandering the potential of the country. And so, Val- so Valerie, thank you. So Valerie, when, when, when the Economic Policy Institute, when we did our third reconstruction budget, we told y'all to tear it apart. You know, go after it, critique it. And you all came back and said that not only was the budget good, it was in the black budget, if I will. In other words, to invest in these things doesn't leave the country in the red. It would actually put the country in the black. It would put the country ahead. Is that still true? That the investment in these things, you know, it, it would not break us. They would, it would actually build us as a nation. Let me give you a, a very practical example of how that works. I was talking about the pandemic policy response and all of the different resources that were made available. What that also did was contribute to a very robust labor market. Mm -hmm. So now we're looking at really low unemployment in large part because we made those investments, because we provided resources to people so that everybody could participate in the economy. And that helped to boost job growth and ultimately what that also contributed to was that we saw for the first time in like 40 years that wages grew the fastest for lower wage workers. Now they're still grossly insufficient (laughs) to care for a family, but we did see that wage growth. So in making those investments contributed to the broader economy, but also helped to raise wages for those at the bottom. Now the next thing that we need to do is raise the minimum wage so that we're able to protect those gains and continue to raise so, so if we had had, if we had had, 
investment jobs, low unemployment, and high wages, we'd be in an even better shape. We'd be in even better shape. But to have low un to have low unemployment and then low wages is actually another misdiagnosis. Yes. It actually defeats the purpose to some degree. On this on this issue, um, I need to ask you all uh, something. And if it, if I'm wrong, if we're wrong. I'm saying we've been hearing on the news during the inflation that the reason the way you deal with inflation is you have to stop wage expansion. In other words, you've got to keep wages low in order to deal with inflation. So what happens is some economists end up arguing that you can't do certain things for poor and low wealth and low wage persons because if you do that, it increases inflation. We've had a number of folks tell us that's exactly a misdiagnosis of why we really have inflation in the first place. It people making more money the cause of inflation? <laughs> <laughs> Who want to take a shot at that one? On I'll, Go ahead. I'll take a shot at that one. <laughs> Is people having more money the cause of inflation in, in this particular uh, environment where we're in? No. Um, there you go. You know, there are a lot of things that contributed to inflation. Again, we were having a, a global pandemic and all of the things that that wrought in terms of, you know, people shifting their consumption from services to more goods. We had the whole supply shock thing that, you know, everybody heard about. It's harder to get things, so that causes prices to go up. There's a war in Ukraine, so that raises prices to some extent. Um, corporate profits contributed to, <laughs> to the increase. And, 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 and price gouging. Price right? gouging and, and, uh, is a piece of that. Yeah, you know, look, look, just some of that. And, and uh, what is the and, book? And so the, the, the real question when we're thinking about wages and whether or not it's going to uh, influence inflation, you have to consider whether wages are growing faster than inflation. That's when it becomes a problem. Because then wages go up, then prices go up, then wages have to go up again because prices are high and it just keeps spiraling. That's not the case. So at this point, no, we don't need to suppress wages to bring inflation down. In fact, wage growth has been slowing in, in recent years, and well, recent months probably more likely. Um, so wage growth is actually helping to dampen inflation as opposed to making it worse right. at this particular yeah. point. So, so, so go ahead, Dave. I was going to say another example is think about places where in the U.S. economy where costs are out of control. I think of the healthcare industry. And it's surely not because the wages are too high for the janitors and the nurses and the, you know, the assistants. Um, it's because drug industry is making tons of money. The insurance companies are making too much money. The, the hospital corporations are making too much money. And all of them are bilking Medicaid and Medicare. So the healthcare is a perfect example of the inefficiency of the American economy. So when our costs are out of control, it's not because the workers are doing too well. Well, you know, you know, no, the whole lie is that folk like in this room and the movements like this just want a handout, just want, uh, you know, welfare. But, 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 I know that, yeah. <laughs> but, but the question, I'm, I want to say to the nation what the lies are. That's why I'm saying it up here. See, because to help a nation, you got to tell her what her lies are. Right, yeah, right. The misdiagnosis is real, y'all. And so, so the lie that healthcare is a handout, the lie is that a living wage is a handout, when really it is just equal protection under the law. It's, 
it's, a, it's just promoting the general welfare. It's just the right thing to do. And, 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 but, but even, in, in, in David, I want to raise one more question or comment up here. We, we have some numbers that say, if we had just raised the minimum wage to $15, you know, when two Democrats and 49 Republicans blocked one vote, that millions of people, closer to 40 million people, would have come up out of low wages, but it would have also pumped 330-some billion dollars in the economy. And if, in fact, corporations weren't getting so much corporate welfare and would pay their workers, then, then you wouldn't have to be trying to kick people off public assistance because people would have different, different uh, sufficient wages and sufficient income. Am I wrong on that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Take a shot at it. Well, I, I want to add something. I think I think you I'm gonna come to you now. I want sure. to get. I got. I want. Sure. I want to hear Go one ahead. of them. Just take one shot at it. This question is: If you really want people off of public assistance, then pay them what they deserve. Because a lot of people are working. Is that? We get about a second. Yes, sir. Is that right? Sir, this is my friend. She's like a daughter to me. We know what we're doing up here, brother. We're not saying we're not having foolishness now. Thank you, sir. Yeah, you but don't have to good. defend her. This girl is like a daughter to we're me. We're good. We're good. <laughs> yes, one more question. Okay. So, yes, I was. So, there's a statistic the majority, about 59 or 60% of workers um, whose total income is below the poverty line would receive a pay increase if the minimum wage were increased. So, yes, the minimum wage would have a significant impact on those living below the official poverty thank, line. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Now, as we had planned, <laughs> there's a reason why we asked Valerie to do this at the end, this point. She's a constitutional lawyer. She was a part of the successful um, legal team uh, that won against voter suppression in the South. And it was the first of its kind voter suppression uh, fight case where we brought together black people, white women, students, churches, synagogues, former military, rural people, urban people as plaintiffs in a case against racist voter suppression. We won and even the, the Supreme Court that was put there stacked to, to, they thought to, to, to agree with her, had to agree when our case came forward that what they were doing was, 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 was a form of racism with surgical intent that was actually hurting the entire democracy. And she introduced me to a concept through a couple of other attorneys called, um, called um, a um, impoverished democracy. And that is why we wanted her to close this. This is by design. <laughs> she also did not grow up in this country, but was not born in this country. And has often said to me sometimes, Reverend Barber, I don't understand what I'm seeing. Why? 
considering where I've come from. So I asked her out of her heart, not just out of her legal mind. She is the Associate Managing Director of the Public Policy and Public Theology Center at Yale. Uh, Valerie, you've heard closing argument. <laughs> well, so a, a couple of things before I talk about, I think, our nation. Um, as Dr. Brady and uh, Bishop Barber have shared about the value um, add argument of um, alleviating poverty and the moral argument for alleviating poverty, it's the right thing to do, but it's also our duty. And I think one of the things that our nation has gotten so good at is this PR um, argument and this um, fight that we have to do, the research that has to be done, the analysis that has to be done for things that should be true. It is this nation's duty to provide for its people. That is what governments are for. And so I think it's important to add a third one to that list. Yes, it's the right thing to do. Yes, it adds value to the economy. It's our nation's duty. And one of the things we've been doing in this movement is to shift the narrative. It's not just about having people talk about poverty, but it's having people reorient their minds around what their nation owes them as citizens and as people living in a country, as human beings living in a country. And so I think one of the things I really wanted to talk about is it's time to put a mirror up to the United States of America. I have spent, I, I, I've lived in the United States and in Nigeria for about the same amount of time. Um, I've, I've spent a similar amount of time in both countries. And this is a country that I love. This is a country that has helped my parents. This is a country that has helped me as a first generation immigrant. But I also think that we have to tackle these issues. We have to say to this nation, we have to, we have to undo the lies. We have to make sure we're understanding how we are um, sweeping under the rug things that are affecting. I, I really um, thought it was important that we started this presentation with people's voices. That's right. With people's stories. It's easy to sweep it under the rug when you don't see people, when you don't feel them, when you don't hear them. And so one of the things we have done in this country is sometimes overanalyze but not listen to the people. And that's one of these things that this movement is doing. I grew up um, in Nigeria, and, and when I hear research like this, when I read um, um, Poverty by America by Matthew Desmond, I can't imagine that this is the same America that people would stand in lines to get visas to, still stand in lines today. I can't imagine that this is the same America that people are clamoring to get into. Of course, of course, poverty in other impoverished nations is much higher, that's true, but by design, by design, this country has set itself out to the world as a leader on democracy, as a leader on innovation, and its people are suffering. And it's time that we stop hiding behind this exceptionalism. It's just not true. And so I, I really am so, so grateful. I think one of, one of um, the things, and, and thank you, sir, but my role really was to convene us. One of the things that the center does and aims to do is to bring into conversation various voices from a legal perspective, from a religious perspective, from an economic perspective, from a public health perspective. We have to start talking to each other. And so this has been a, a fantastic conversation and really will ground us as we move to, through the rest of this Congress. So I'll turn it back thank to you, you, Bishop Barber. Yeah, we want... Write, write this down. 
by design. See, when you, when you go and buy a car and it starts operating different than its design, you don't say, well, at least it runs three days, but their car only, only runs one. <laughs> you do a recall. And the recall is best on, based on design is faulty. And you fix it. You fix it. You fix it. You don't, you don't throw the cars away. You fix it. Nobody's asking throw America away, but we are saying fix it. Because by design you said this. By design you said this. And even in your great hymns you say, America mend on every flaw. We mourn when we see soldiers die. We're talking about the soldiers of every day, the everyday people that work hard, struggle, survive in a system that does not have to be. By design, you said it wasn't supposed to be this, so fix it. We had to have a first reconstruction to fix it. And that reconstruction was killed and murdered and torn apart by 1890s. We had a second reconstruction to fix it. 1954, Brown decision, all the way up to 1968, that movement was murdered, killed, and destroyed. So we've never finished the reconstruction. But what we are saying is the reconstruction spirit may have at times been killed and pushed back, but it rises again. <laughs> and it rises in us. Fix it. And then we've heard, it's fixable. It's not even like you gotta do 50 things. We got 28 things in the third reconstruction agenda. 28 things. And the 28 things are gonna benefit everybody. But we have to have the moral truth and stop lying and saying it isn't broken. And in order to show that it's broken, we gotta put faces and facts together. And we gotta bring conversations that inform movement. See, this is not a benign conversation or a conversation isolated from movement. That's why this was designed like this, right? We put the footnote and the facts and the foot soldiers all together. And, that, and then we walk by faith and not by sight. And we, and we can keep going and keep going. My brothers and sisters, from the videos to now, every number you heard up here represents some person. We've been here for an hour and 20 people have died from poverty. I know enough about America's history to know until she's broken and cries, she does not change. It was only when she had to look at all the unnecessary caskets coming from Vietnam that she changed. And so we cannot let these deaths be unseen. In a real sense, this is our time to be like Emmett Till's mama. And say, you're going to look at this. We're not, we not going to blow you up. We're not going to shoot you. 
We don't need that, but you're going to look at this. You're going to see this. We're not going to allow folk to die in silence and alone. No, we're going to walk. If we got to walk with a casket, we got, we got to put pictures on. If we got to, we got everywhere we go, you're going to see it and you're going to feel it because the design is not being followed. The corrected design is not being followed and we can fix it and it needs to be fixed. And what we don't need is misdiagnosis, false narratives. And as my grandma used to say, putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> so turn to your neighbor and say, you're not my enemy. <laughs> turn it up. I want us to be very careful in how we talk to one another. This is not a space where nobody's trying to hurt anybody. We had a design for today. And I understand some spaces people have been in before, but this is a love space. We're not here to do everything. We can't do everything in this conference. You know, we're not here to fix every little thing that happens, it has happened inside of your coordinating committee. We're gonna have a special session in September to do that. We're here to do policy, to go on Capitol Hill, to put this before the nation, to prepare for what's gonna happen next year. We need every state involved putting this before state capitals. We need to come back to D.C. in the most massive way in June. We need to have a massive turnout to poll. We need to do a few things so well. And we need to put a spotlight on this so big. And we need to create a microphone so loud that we cannot and will not be denied. We cannot bring those from the dead back to life but we can challenge and stop more death from happening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. And so we close this session, y'all, if you're here, there's a song that they sung, and people who misinterpret the singing, Greg, Valerie, and David, and there's two Valerie's. Uh, they misinterpret it because they think that when the folk were singing it, they meant like for a long time, and it was kind of a, 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 a passivity. But the song says, hold on uh, just a little while longer. Justice is in his cold me. It says, Martin done told me, uh, and, and Rosa has done told me, uh, what's that song, y'all? They done told me that everything's gonna be all right. And, and what it was was a way of singing to encourage you to stay in the fight. See, see I, I, I don't think I will be judged and you will be judged if we don't accomplish everything we fight for. But I think we will be judged if we don't fight. And I know that you can't have any change till you call for it and face it and work for it. And, and what I do know is something that Benny Mays said. The sin in life is not not reaching your goals, it's having none to reach. And one of the greatest sins of this country right now is low aim. 
And so we compromise on people's lives because we got low aim. We think all we can do is just a little bit of tweaking on poverty, low aim. And we've got to call this nation to higher ground. So if the team is here, I want everybody to stand. Has, has this been helpful? Would you celebrate these scholars? Are y'all glad they on our team? Y'all glad we got David? We got Greg? We got Valerie and Valerie? And a host of other people? Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.